This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Donald N.S. Unger, the author of Men Can, The Changing Image and Reality of Fatherhood in America, and lecturer in the program in Writing and Humanistic Studies at MIT, writes about representations of men, masculinity, and fatherhood in popular culture. Unger shares his thoughts with Knowledge at Wharton on the changing role of fatherhood. Uh, Don, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with a personal question. As you have grown, how has your view of fatherhood changed? Uh, In short, what carried over from your own childhood? And what ideas did you incorporate as as you became an adult? I think... One of the things that I admire most about my own father, one of the things that I think he did very well, um, has less to do with political orientation than it does with his professional orientation. He's an engineer. He was a professor of computer science. And his attitude was always both very functionalist and very open, very let's try this. We can probably make it work, that sort of thing. And I believe that he did that on a pretty gender-neutral basis with my sister and with myself. So that, that's something that I certainly um, admired and have tried to do myself with my own daughter. In terms of, of things that I have done differently, I would characterize a lot of that as being generational. I don't, I don't think of my father as having been distant, but he was at a, a sort of a, you know, a, a more typical parenting distance for men of that time. I was growing up in the 60s, the 70s. I guess one counterweight to that is that my parents got divorced when I was a kid, and my sister and I did end up staying with my father. So in that sense, he was certainly, you know, he was was the parent left standing. Uh, Your your book is about the changing image and reality of fatherhood in America. How has the reality and image of fatherhood changed, and why? Well, you know, we're here at Wharton, and I think it's important to sort of talk about this from a financial point of view, because I think economics is certainly one of the linchpins of that change. If you look at what has happened in the United States economy since the 1960s and 1970s, the way that we've preserved a reasonably functioning middle class is by making the two-earner household the default. And if you if you look, for example, uh, right now, I believe The Economist had a cover story this spring on the fact that women now outnumber men in the workforce. And that's an artifact of the current recession, so that's not the happiest of things, and we can argue about uh, the degree to which the necessity for a two-earner household is a, is a good thing. But I think that, that that economic fact of life was really one of the, the strong engines of change. Underpinning that, of course, were the battles and victories of the feminist movement and egalitarian movements more generally in the 60s and 70s. So I think what what one of well one of the first changes has been everybody works and once you're at a point where everybody works something has to begin changing at home to sort of redistribute labor in some more reasonable way we're still arguing about how much that has changed and i think that that argument the, the position you take in that argument is often inflected by your political position and ironically i think people on the progressive side of the spectrum can be more resistant to the notion that there's been positive change because when they hear you say there's been positive change, what they think you're saying is we don't need to talk about this anymore. We've reached some post-gender kind of equality and, and we're done with that discussion. I certainly don't think that that's true. On the other hand, I think that if you go to the average park at this point and, and look at who's, 
who's with the kids on the playground, you see more men than, uh, than you saw 10 years ago, even five years ago. In terms of image, I, I, the strongest evolution that I think I see is from the sort of doofus dad image, this kind of image of men being domestically incompetent in commercials on television and movies towards a more even-handed, open depiction of, of men and, and what men can or can't do. And, and I should be clear that although I'm crabby, irritable, and sensitive about how men are mischaracterized in this fashion, the damage of that image, the damage of the incompetent man image is really most severe for women. Because what it says to women is, sorry, we just can't. We're just we're fundamentally incapable of cooking, cleaning kids, those kinds of things. We do it if we could. We're stupid. Sorry, your problem. And that leaves women in this sort of untenable position, particularly professional women, because it means that they're supposed to carry the entire burden. So to begin to sort of move off that that image, I think is a, a it's it's a good step in the direction of, of showing men in more dignified positions, but it, it's also crucial for, for women. So how, how do you think the changing role of women uh, in the family and in the workplace has affected notions of motherhood? Uh, and what implications has that had for the way fatherhood is being defined? I think that mothers have, have really been in a very difficult position for a long time. And to some degree, equality, this is one of these situations where a positive thing has at least difficult knock-on consequences. Uh, so, you know, women now, rather than having a sort of clearly defined set of domestic responsibilities, mothers, rather than having a clearly defined set of maternal responsibilities, have professional responsibilities as well. So women complain, and I think with reason, that they can be pilloried either for working outside the home, and therefore they're being bad mothers, they're, quote, neglecting their children, unquote, or for not working outside the home, in which case they're neglecting their financial responsibilities to the family, perhaps they're even smothering the child. So this is sort of reconfiguring right now, both what's happening, how we think about what's happening, how we feel about what's happening with the role of women. For men, one of the consequences of that that I'm, I'm particularly interested in and one of the things that I think is under-discussed is the issue of, of territoriality. If you look at the professional sphere, women spent decades fighting their way into a variety of professional spaces and educational spaces as well, right? Women are now a majority of college graduates, majority of law school, medical school graduates. That was a, a difficult, but I would argue an emotionally satisfying kind of battle to wage. On the flip side, at home, what we're now seeing is men beginning to come into those areas in greater numbers with greater intensity. But what that means for women is really yielding their exclusive power over the domestic sphere. Now that may be, a lot of women may have wanted help and support in a variety of ways. Uh, some women certainly had clear author, uh, egalitarian uh, orientation and, and wanted to see a, a, a fair or a, a more equal division of domestic labor. But for other women, I think it feels like they're losing this space or sort of having to figure out uh, who gets to do what, who has authority in that space. And I, I think that that's, um, it, it's, a, it's a difficulty that we haven't examined enough. It's a, it's a point of resistance that we haven't looked at enough. Uh, in your book, uh, did you find cultural differences among different ethnic groups regarding their approach to parenting? And what, were, what are the implications for children? 
one of the things that I, I found most interesting is that sometimes the the differences that you find are opposite of the differences that you thought that you would find. For example, it's it's fairly typical for North Americans to characterize Latinos as being people who come from a macho culture, uh, and you know, and therefore we think men maintain a certain image of themselves, particularly a, a kind of public profile of themselves, a sort of hyper-masculine. That's certainly the stereotype. Right. And But what you see in reality, what you see, for example, I, I've lived in Mexico for a number of months, is a much greater ease, for example, on the part of teenage boys with childcare, with taking care of younger children, with um, playing with younger children, that, that sort of thing. And uh, a greater ease as well on the part of, of men in, in a lot of those roles, a greater sense that uh, part of their community responsibility is a responsibility towards children. Now, I don't think that that, uh, I think there are still restraints on that. I had a conversation in Mexico with a friend who was talking about what he did when he was supposed to do something with male friends and a child care obligation interfered with that. What he did was tell his friends that he had to do something for his mother. And he said he did this because he might, if he admitted that what he was doing was going to do something to take care of his kids, that might be publicly perceived as a battle he had lost with his wife. And he couldn't see himself represented that way. If he said he had to do something for his mother, however, this was a sort of sacred issue that no one would trifle with in any way. You have to do something with your mother, fine, we, we understand completely. Nobody would criticize or ridicule you about that. So there's change going on even in, I mean, first off, more traditional societies are not necessarily as traditional as we think they are. Second off, there's change going on in those societies, some of it covert, but some of it quite overt. One of the really interesting things I found about your book is uh, how you examine uh, the, the popular culture, you know, films, uh, and the way they depict uh, uh, images of fatherhood. Uh, specifically, you refer to two films, uh, Mary Poppins and Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, to show how ideas of fatherhood are changing. What did you, uh, your analysis show about that? Well, the thing that I found particularly interesting about Mary Poppins, and, and Mary Poppins the movie is very different from Mary Poppins the book. Uh, when I have students, when I have college students go back and look at Mary Poppins the movie, they're usually very surprised at what they really see going on in the movie as opposed to what they remember. Because what people remember is sort of the magic nanny comes and fixes everything. But they don't really remember the, the sort of content of what happens. And really, you could crunch the movie down to magical nanny comes and induces psychotic break in father, converting him from a cold bureaucrat to a warm parent. And that, that's really what happens. That's really who changes. And that was sort of interesting and surprising to me. And I, I think that has more to do with the time and the place that the movie came out of, which would be 1960s in the United States. Uh, right after Betty Friedan's Feminist Mystique came out versus the time that the books came out, which is the 1930s in England. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer was interesting to me because it was it came out in 78. This is the point at which California became the first state to make joint custody uh, sort of more the, the preferred default. Uh, we came out of almost a century of what was referred to as the tender years doctrine, which basically said kids are better off with their mothers. And yet in the movie, the struggle in the movie, we watch the father redefine himself on the ground. We watch him change, and then we see that his actions are not enough to change the image. They're not enough to legally win the day. Spoiler, spoiler alert at the end of the movie, 
the kid ends up with the father, but that's not the legal decision. And that's, that's interesting as well. So I think that Kramer versus Kramer is really, it's right in the cauldron of this change in, in the image and popular culture. Where we're sort of not sure what we want men to look like, what we want fathers to, to look like. Is there a so-called corporate view of fatherhood that emerges through television advertising? And if so, what is it? I, I think there are probably two corporate views. Uh, one corporate view, a sort of pure instrumental capitalist approach would be we do whatever we need to do to maximize the efficiency of our employees. Uh, I teach at MIT, for example, the unit of the institute that I teach within is very family-friendly. There's a very strong emphasis that all of us, mothers, fathers, whatever, take care of each other and make sure that we can do what we need to do to take care of our families because that makes us better employees, because it means we miss less time off from work. It means that we're more efficient when we're there. I think things run well under that system. And I think that a, a well-organized corporate entity does that because that's efficient. On the other hand, I think that we're all, whatever part of the hierarchy you belong to, manager, executive of whatever kind, we bring into those roles our personal prejudices. And certainly we're just hopefully coming out of a period of time where the personal prejudices of managers, I think, has hurt men, has hurt women, and has hurt families. That managers have brought in their sort of... Uh, rigid frameworks about what men are supposed to do and what women are supposed to do. For women, I think this has often meant discrimination in hiring because the sense has been we're not going to hire women because they're going to go off and, and just irresponsibly become parents, so why should we invest in them? For men, I would argue that men in some ways have been punished more when men take advantage of legal or contractual leeway that we have to take care of family because for some managers that's been seen as kind of a betrayal of masculinity. You know, we hired you because we thought you'd be a man, you'd keep your nose to the grindstone, we could rely on you. Now you're telling us that you're going to go off because your child is sick? That's that's unforgivable. I mean, that, that's a, you know, a, a career-impeding or sometimes a career-ending uh, kind of problem. Uh, one of the chapters in the book, for example, is about a uh, former state trooper in Maryland. Uh, he... Applied I, was, for I was just about to ask you who is Kevin Nussman and yeah. why does his story matter? Uh, he is a uh, former state trooper from uh, Maryland. He was a helicopter paramedic for most of his career in the state police. When his first child was born, um, his wife had a difficult pregnancy. Kevin applied for leave under the Federal uh, Family and Medical Leave Act that uh, Bill Clinton signed. He was denied leave. The personnel director for the Maryland State Police said, you don't have breasts, you can't breastfeed, you can't be primary parent, you can't have leave. And Kevin ended up suing. Uh, ironically, the state trooper ended up suing with the help of the ACLU, and he eventually won that, that, uh, that suit. So, you know, he's an example of, of somebody. He, he's also somebody who's a very conservative person. Kevin's analysis of the situation was that a government bureaucracy was preventing him from taking care of his family in the way that he needed to take care of his family. In some ways, he came at this from a kind of libertarian uh, point of view. He eventually retired from the state police and became a full-time stay-at-home parent. Uh, in today's global economy, uh, competition is intense, and technology and working across different time zones have dramatically blurred the boundary between work life and home life. In this situation, who is a good father? 
Ah. <laughs> uh... I, I would say that a, a good father is a father who puts in the necessary time. And necessary is a, a fairly flexible phrase as far as I'm concerned. I think that you know we do need to put in, um, I think we need to take care of our kids, but I think how we take care of our kids differs from family to family. And it's not my place or the place of anybody else to come into your family from the outside and say, you're not doing this right. Uh, how, you know, how childcare is divided up is, a decision between the parents in, in the household. Could you speak a little bit about the kind of trade-offs that it forces upon families and how they can resolve the kind of issues that result? I think what's crucial in almost all of these situations is that the parents have overt discussions about what it is that they want to do and how they want to do it. And I would suggest that those discussions ought to start before people get married. We come into relationships with a lot of embedded assumptions for because of the times we grew up, because of the cultures we grew up in. And even if uh, people contemplating getting married have an agreement that they're going to share childcare, what they mean by share childcare might not be the same thing. And so I think that those discussions need to be very explicit. And then I think in an ongoing way, just as you were pointing out that the global economy is um, endlessly flexible and endlessly changing, we need to be flexible in terms of how we deal with our families. We need to realize that uh, children grow and change in all kinds of ways. We as parents and as professionals or as workers grow and change in all kinds of ways. So while we need to negotiate some sort of initial set of understandings about the kinds of parents we want to be, we also need to negotiate those changes in an ongoing way because none of this stands still. It just keeps moving faster and faster. Uh, to, to wind up, I wonder if we could end again on a personal note. Uh, your book ends with, a, with an afterword, and the afterword begins with a poem that you uh, address to your daughter. Could you share that poem with our audience? I'll try to do this without choking up. Uh, I wrote this when my daughter was about two years old. Um, she was, I, I was the person who uh, bathed her. And I remember even when she was very little bathing her and becoming acutely aware that I was going to lose her, that, you know, you, we, we always lose our children. And that's, you know, on some level, that's a positive. I think Khalil Gibran said something like, our children are the arrows that we shoot into the future. I mean, the, the natural course of things is that kids grow up, but that's still a, a, a poignant and difficult thing. So this is called Grow Up. I miss her already, my daughter, two years old and slick as a seal with me in our clawfoot tub, swimming away, upward toward the light. And when I say I cut the cord, Changed you, bathed you, fed you. Oh, Dad, she'll sigh, exasperated. Let it go, will you? Grow up. And if I want that for either of us, I can't quite figure out which one. Don, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.